Um, yeah, I want to welcome you into class. We're uh, in the, uh, actually the fourth class on church history. I called the class a survey of church history. It is very much a, probably about a 90,000 foot view of church history, but we're going to cover some important times and events this morning in the second age that I, um, that I sort of laid out for you. There were eight time periods. We did the first one, which was really the foundational one, which was uh, the age of Jesus Christ and his apostles. Of course, the church really begins <clears throat> as an offshoot of Judaism with Christ. Christ sends out the, you know, our Lord sends out his great commission, right? The disciples go into all the world, make, this, make disciples of, of uh, people. Um, and then you have Paul, and we're going to tie in his ministry a little bit this morning as well. Um, the, the, there's really two things I want to get out of this time period, and I think it's really critical. Um, we have a, a sense as what, what I would say is you know, modern Christians, um, or, or a lack of sense, at the end of Revelation. What happened, Right? The last um, book, roughly around 90 AD or so, uh, written. Um, what, what now? What next? What's happened? You know, there's been around 2,000 years since. The church is live and, and well, and most, you know, um, doctrinal, foundational, biblical teaching churches. But what about all the other stuff? How do we get there? Um, I think that's one of the great mysteries and one of the great things that I hope to take away from this class. Well, it hasn't been a study of tons and tons of scripture. Um, it's been a little bit more academic, um, and this morning will be that. There are some scriptures that I want to go to that show certain historical people and places. Um, and I, I want to remind us also that, that we, we worship and, and love and serve a, a historical God, uh, a God who did create time, a God of order. A God who created the atom and the molecule and the universe and the sun and, and with that time. And so we sit in a specific place in a specific time. Um, and God himself, you know, even talked about the coming of his Christ at the right time. We were saved at the right time in eternity past in the, you know, in the foreknowledge and decree of our Lord. It's amazing. And so I love these studies. I want to talk a little bit, there's, there's some definitions that we have to hit before we get into here, uh, into this study, uh, into this particular time period, and I don't want to freak people out when you hear the word Catholic. Um, I don't want you to freak out when you hear the word Episcopalian or uh, Episcopal. I don't want you to freak out when you see the word, you know, Orthodox. Um, and I want to define this in a sort of in an, an academic sense because it's important um, to have a strong, girded up, underlying faith that where we sit today, what we read today, has survived the test of time. Okay, it has. Um, so let me give you an overarching view of this time period to, to kick this off, all right? In this time period, in what we call, or what a lot of historians would call, church historians especially, the age of Catholic Christianity, which spans about a 200 to 300 year period. Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire and probably even as far east as India. 
We have good biblical evidence even of that. Christians realized that they were a part of a rapidly moving and rapidly expanding movement. They called it Catholic. This suggested that it was universal in spite of pagan ridicule and Roman persecution. And it was the true faith in opposition to all perversions of Jesus' teachings. And and I'll, I'll pause for a minute because it's right away in the first century that we start to see major attacks major attacks on, uh, on the true Christianity, on the true faith. We see things like Gnosticism and Semism and, and a few other is, isms uh, that come out right away in the first century. And why would we be surprised, right? Why would we be even, even be surprised right at the death, resurrection, right at the death, burial, and resurrection, immediately authorities try to inauthenticate, right, was the body stolen, you know, somebody came and stole it. Surely it was a Roman guard. Surely it was this and surely it was that. Right away we start to see wild theories and, and they're wrong, okay? <clears throat> and so it's not a surprise that we start to see right away attacks on the true faith, on the true Christian faith, but it survived. To face the challenges of their times, Christian turned, Christians turned increasingly to their bishops or their local teachers or local leaders for spiritual leadership. Catholic Christianity, therefore, was marked by a universal vision, by orthodox beliefs, and by Episcopal church government. Let's define these terms, all right? We're going to define them so that we don't get all weirded out. Orthodox simply means traditionally accepted as right or true. It's a teaching. It is a, it is a, um, a truth that is widely accepted, that it is widely believed. It's established and it's approved. All right? <clears throat> Episcopal means governed or having bishops. It means having some local leadership, having someone or some uh, church uh, government that really was the established government at the time. And you'll, you'll see this. It was the church that originally kept birth records it was the church that originally kept marriage records. Um, and, and, you know, and we still have even weddings today in churches. Well, where did that originate? Catholic simply means universal. It, it simply means through the whole, worldwide, all-inclusive. That what we see in this time period, and I want to be really um, diligent in defining this, is not what you note as today as the Roman Catholic Church. It, in, in the 100 to 250, 300 uh, after the death is not what we would see today if we were to go on a Saturday evening or whatever at, in, a, in a Catholic Mass. This is not uh, today's Roman Catholic Church. <clears throat> so the first, so what was it then, right? We gotta answer that. What was it? And what, what is this Catholic or this universal um, spread of Christianity? First century Christianity was a spiritual explosion. We see this in Scripture. We don't have to go very far past the Gospels to see the massive amount of growth that took place in first century church. It was ignited by life in the presence of none other than Jesus Christ. <clears throat> The church hurtled in all directions, geographic as well as social. The second and third centuries provided the channel for this explosion. There was a lot happening politically, socioeconomically, and culturally that really allowed 
in God's plan and his master plan for the expansion of the church. It's an exciting time in the church. It's a tumultuous time in the church, but it's a great and expansive time in the church. It's the time that we see in Hollywood of Christians being led into coliseums and fed to lions. It's the, it's the great time of martyrdom, of great people like Justin Martyr and others who are martyred and killed and burned at the stake and literally fed to wild animals uh, and, and just in public displays. But it's also the time where the church reaches as far west as France and Spain. It's also the time where the church reaches as far east as possibly India. It's a great and terrible time. Today, with the Catholic creed, we confess faith in, we don't, but it's confessed, that's probably a better way to word it, it is confessed by Catholics, the Holy Catholic Church, um, and that's where they get this origin as well. This, that is what this period gave us, Catholic Christianity. It was more than organization. It was a spiritual vision. It was a conviction that all Christians should be one body. It's, it's the vision of what we think of as the universal church. Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go into all the world. You know this. Paul had laid down his life, opening the door for the church of the Gentiles. And here we sit. In a sense, Catholic Christianity was simply a development of Jesus' plans and Paul's efforts. And again, I want to be clear on this. What I mean by the Catholic Church or the Catholic sense here is not what we know today as the Roman Catholic Church. This was the universal, the, the expansion or through the whole world or worldwide all-inclusive Christianity. It was to go into all the world. Though the universality of Christian, Christianity is a common idea in the New Testament, the term Catholic never appears. We also need to recognize that. If you can find it on your page, then we probably got to find you a accurate Bible. Okay? Um, even the word, and I'll just pause here. This is just saying that reminds me of this in my studies this week. Biblia, the word Bible, even comes out of this time period. It's the collected works that, in, in not including the Apocrypha, battles were fought over what would be included and canonized into Scripture in this time period. It's a great time period of where we get the accurate Bible that sits in your lap just now. Um, but the word Bible is even um, originates in this time period. Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch in the early 2nd century is the first to use the word. He's apparently first to use the word Catholic. And even in his own mind, I can promise you this, that the, the thought on the organization of what is today, the Roman Catholic Church, did not appear in his mind. It was, it was not yet born. It was not yet um, expanded out into... Uh, what we think of today with the Pope and the bishops and the cardinals and, um, you know, and all of that. He spoke of the word Catholic Church when he said, and this is a quote, this is taken from a historical letter that he wrote, wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. It was in that worldwide sense, the universal sense. <clears throat> By the end of the second century, the term Catholic was widely used of the church in the sense that the Catholic church was both universal in contrast to local congregations. 
and it was orthodox. In other words, it was what was traditionally accepted, traditionally taught. We have to ask the question, by whom? By whom? It was what was accepted and traditionally taught by our Lord. It was what was exceptionally and traditionally taught by his disciples, by the writers of the Bible, by Paul. <clears throat> so, again, we're not going to wig out when we see this term. Catholic Christianity <clears throat> was the development of, again, of Jesus' plans and Paul's efforts. And we're going to trace this this morning. So I want to pause again. If there's one takeaway from this morning's class about this particular time period, I want you to see the spread of Christianity, okay? The spread of Christianity. That's critical. That's important. One of the reasons it was able to spread was because of the very people who oppressed Christianity, which was the Roman Empire. And, and I want to I just explain this just a bit, just build this out for you. The Roman Empire's mission was to make all the world Rome. Okay, we've, we've seen this even in Hollywood. You can't watch the movie Gladiator without hearing certain quotes and things. Okay, most of that is absolutely far-fetched, and most of that is not historical. One of the mindsets, though, which isn't far-fetched, is it was to make the world Rome. Well, when you have one governing body whose mission is to take over the world, there's going to be things like common language. All right, we get the first idea of lingua franca from this time period, which at the time was Greek. It is not coincidence that the Old Testament's first translation into, out from Hebrew into Greek, uh, or I'm sorry, into another language was into Greek. It was the Koine Greek, the common Greek. Well, that allows us to get other translations and eventually even into translations, things like English, okay? So it's something that came from the time period. Another thing that happens when you have one dominant government or one dominant empire that tries to take over the world is economics, all right? You start to see trade routes. You start to see people moving through time, through geography, connecting places like Western Europe and India and using the Mediterranean as, um, as a highway. Um, a very, very important area that went to rural, or that a rural area that Christianity spread was what was um, what we call modern Turkey or then Asia Minor. That is also the way Christianity spreads northward out of there through a, a place, if you're familiar with this, called Transcaucasia. All right, we're not going to hit all of that, but it's important to understand that. The very enemies of Christianity also provided some of the vessels in which Christianity was able to spread. Only God can, you know, with his plan, with his providence, could even use that. I think that's important for us to see as well. So, some things happen here. By the end of the second century, the term Catholic is widely used. Why is it widely used? It's meaning universal. Um, what is orthodox about it? It's, the, it's based on the traditional accepted teachings of Christ, his disciples, and Paul. Got to ask this question then. How did the scattered congregations of apostolic times become Catholic Christianity? How? Christianity, as we've seen, began as a tiny offshoot of Judaism. Three centuries later, it became the favored religion just in a 300-year time, time period. We're, we aren't even 300 years old yet as a nation. 
Okay, so just put that into perspective. In less than a 300 year time period, you have now Christianity as the official religion of what was the Roman Empire. How does that even happen? Uh, three centuries later, it's the favored religion. As I mentioned, it eventually grew to the official religion of the, of the Roman Empire. Despite widespread and determined efforts to eliminate the new faith, it survived and grew. By the reign of Constantine, the first professing, and I put this professing Christian emperor, because there's, there's wide debate, okay? There, there's wide debate here as to whether he had a true saving faith or was Christianity merely a vessel for him to expand his own empire because he was a smart man who saw, wow, hey, I may be, Christianity is spreading so fast, maybe I can use this to spread my own empire. I mean, we see political efforts like this um, who use, even in our world today, who use vessels, whether it be Christianity or whether it be wokeism, whatever the vessel, whatever, we will see politicians even today, right, use these things to further their own agendas. Well, it could be, this case could be made, okay? However, Chris Constantine, in a lot of his personal writings, in a lot of his own journal, um, did profess Christ. And I will leave that up to the Lord. It would be pretty amazing someday to see Constantine walking around heaven. We'll find out. So his life around, uh, was, a, a, or his rule was between 312 and 337. He's the first professing Christian empire. Uh, there were churches in every large town in the empire and places as distant from each other as Britain, Carthage, which is in modern-day Tunisia or, or Algeria, um, and Persia. Well, we've got to ask this question. How did that happen? We're going to answer that. Where specifically did Christianity spread and why did it expand so rapidly? We're going to answer that. And we have very good historical evidence um, on why and how that happens. First... Let's talk about this. The Apostle Paul told the Roman Christians. In fact, let, let's go here. Here's some scripture intertwined in a new history lesson. Nothing more fun than that. Let's go to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Someone want to read that? Of course, the book of Romans written to Christians where? Yeah. The local church where? Rome, the largest city, by the way, Rome being the largest city in the Roman Empire at this time. And we got a, a very significant church there. What does Paul say in Romans 1.16? This is an underlinable verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for us. Go ahead, go ahead. Leo. <laughs> for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's a lot here to unpack, even historically. Okay, first of all, you got a guy, Paul, who's extremely, extremely unashamed of his faith. Unashamed. And he's writing to a church in Rome, and he's telling this church of primarily Gentiles in Rome that Christianity is going to spread to whom first? Jews. To the Jews. So in God's master plan, again, he sees fit first to the Jew. Well, how in the world does that happen? You've got a tiny population at that time and even today, 
you know, one of the smallest populations of people that is going to be most effective in spreading the largest religion of the time. So Paul writes here, everyone who believes, to everyone who believes. Key word here, not just the Jew, but God would see fit that what all would come to faith if, if, you know, if he would call them. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Of course, we know not everyone is going to come to faith, right, to a saving faith. We know that. But it was meant to be shared with everyone, go into all the world. Again, it's this universal nature. To whom first, the Jew, and to also the Greek. So it seems fit here in Paul's ministry and in the ministry of Christ, the best place to launch a tour of early Christian expansion is with the Jew. Turn the page on the notes. The descendants of Abraham, which we can trace in our scripture in the Old Testament, were present in large numbers in every part of the Roman Empire. I think this is great. I'll, I'll just fill this out. I'm, I'm a histor- history nut. This is what I studied in college. Um, and these two time periods, this one and the next one, are one of the most fascinating to study. One of the most, what I want to say, like one of probably the most insignificantly populated group of people, the Jew was one of the best at recording history. They were incredible at keeping journeys or journals and incredible at writing down history. It's in their heritage. How many major prophets, think about this, how many major prophets write, write, even in their scripture, record what God told them to record? It is, I think of Joshua, I think of others who who say, even in their writings, I am writing exactly what you told me to write. It is in their nature. They are great at recording history. It's not coincidence that they're also great at expanding the gospel and recording it as it goes. I think this is interesting. Some authorities tell us that they may have numbered as high as about 7% of the total population. We're not even close to that. You know, not even close to that today. they're, they're, I don't know if they'd be 0.7 or 0.07. I don't know the math on that. But at this time, they're a fairly significant part of the population. They were a blessed people. Their distinctive religious beliefs made them a constant source of attraction and repulsion at the same time to their Gentile neighbors. In uncertain times, many Gentiles, Greeks and Romans found the teaching of the synagogue a profound and compelling wisdom. At other times, they're not very sure. I mean, I want you to think about this for a second. You have a group of people who worship one God, extremely contrary to the Romans and the Greeks. You have a group of people who, to become Jew, uh, to become, and by the way, you can be Jewish and not be Jewish. Okay, I can be a Jew in faith but not in ethnicity or in race. And so you have a people who were very careful about identifying themselves with circumcision, very careful about identifying themselves with certain rites of passage, you know, at 12 for boys, at 13 for girls. I may have that reversed. My point is this. They, to become a Jew, it was difficult. And you had to do things physically and religiously to do it, to become a Jew. And so the Romans and Greeks would have found that 
at many times just repulsive. Like, why would I ever want to do those things to my body or to my 12-year-old or to my 13-year-old? You have to understand this. But what happens to Christianity expands out of Judaism into the Roman and Greek society. Why? We got to ask this. We got to know this. Well, it's this. It's the preaching of the gospel. And it is no different in 2023. The preaching of God's word. The preaching of the gospel found its most fruitful response from Gentiles who were interested in Judaism. They were interested in the goings-on and the strength and wisdom of the Jewish faith. When Christian preachers made it plain to these folks that without submitting to the rite of circumcision, which both Greeks and Romans considered degrading and repulsive, they could receive all the Judaism, all that Judaism had offered and more. It was not difficult for them to take one further step and accept Christ, or accept Jesus as Christ. Go to Romans 2. Let's read verses 28 and 29. Here we have some scriptural evidence of this. Paul scolds the Jews in this, kind of. He tells them, you know, you have... You know, you have the law, you have circumcision, you, you have nothing. You have nothing without faith. Well, go here. Here, I'll read this one just for time's sake. There's no way I, I'm going to get through this otherwise. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Well, what's his point? But he is a Jew who is one Inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, or uh, not from men, but from God. This is a spiritual transformation. This is a spiritual faith. It's not what we do outwardly. And again, this isn't anything that's changed for you and me in 2023. It's not what you profess. It's not what you do to your body. It's the transformation that happens spiritually. Well, when that is preached to a Roman or a Gentile, a Gentile, a Greek or a Roman, all of a sudden I can do this. This is something that's interesting to me. The transformation happens by faith, not physically. So, Christianity spreads. The world in ancient Rome meant cities. All right, this is really the age in which we become less and less rural and more and more uh, urban. And so we see churches pop up through the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul set the pattern for evangelism in early centuries of Christianity by settling for a time in one of the great cities of the empire and through his younger helpers thrusting out from this center to smaller towns of the region. We may see, or we may trace the major steps of progress in the spread of the gospel in this way. We have great scriptural evidence of this. Letters written by Paul to local churches in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Colossae, in Thessalonica. And we see over and over the spread of Christianity. After the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, which was what we call the great diaspora or the, the great spreading out of, of, um, of Jews. They have to leave Jerusalem. The center of Christian movement moved north and eventually west. I think this is interesting. I want you to just sit on the globe for a second today. All right, just, just metaphorically, sit on the globe. Think of this. Where is Christianity 
And where is Christianity not? You see vast expanses of Asia in downtrodden, spiritually depraved Muslim nations and in Asian nations even today. And a lot of that is the reason historically right here in the first, second, and third centuries. It didn't go effectively east. It went effectively west and it went effectively north. And we sit here today, if we just fast forward about 1400 years, we, we, fast, we sit here today in a nation that was established not for Christianity, but for religious freedom. It was those who were fleeing persecution in Europe. How did it even get to Europe? Right here, right here, in this century, in, in this time period. So we sit here today as a result of Christianity that spread first, second, third century into places like Spain and France and eventually into Britain and eventually into the United States. We did not see it go east effectively into India, into um, Southeast Asia, into China, into Japan. Interesting. In 2023. A lot of it was, uh, well, it's because of God's plan ultimately. But a lot of it was, if we just look at it in a historical context and not necessarily a spiritual context, a lot of it is because of language. Um, a lot of it is because of geography and culture. Um, it was much easier to use the Mediterranean and go westward and into trade routes into, into Europe and get in there. Um, and, and a lot of it was also just the political epicenter of the time was Rome. And so that was west. Um, and so we did not see it go effectively, nearly as effectively, eastward. Um, not a lot has changed. We send missionaries today to, uh, to the east, to Africa. Um, very low populations of Christianity. Yes, Pastor Rod? In the book of Acts, Acts 15 and 16, yeah. Paul was forbidden to go east. He went into Greece rather than into Asia Minor. Yeah, I have, um, and Romans 16 later in here, I, I, I added that in. And uh, Stephen, uh, there's parts in here as well about um, uh, like some of the, I'll, I'll get there in my notes here. I'm jumping ahead. But yes, um, Paul was forbidden. That's right. He was forbidden in 15 and 16 to go east. And so again, in just God's master plan, it acts. Yeah. Oh, did I say something else? Yeah, Acts 15 and 16. We'll, we'll get into that too as well. Um, it's interesting. You know, God is clear. He restates it in, in the book of Romans. Um, you know, he's going to save who he's going to save. And, um, and clearly in his plan, he allowed Christianity to really flourish west and north and it really just died when it went east um, and that's God's own foreknowledge and decree um, go, go into my notes here uh, go to under Roman numeral 3 letter uh, number 1 there after the fall of, Ju of uh, Jerusalem in AD 70 skip down to that last sentence this is where I kind of left off by the end of the 4th century Antioch was a city of about a half a million people. And this is interesting. 
and this is pretty well documented, about half of those people, Christian. About half of that city, Christian. Um, not today. Uh, and not even close. Um, it did not take in Syria. Uh, Syria today, Antioch is, is, is uh, still an ex- a city in existence. Um, it's not near the, the, the vibrance and health of, of this time period. Um, and Syria, in large part, is one of Israel's greatest enemies um, and very, very low population of believers in, the, in, that, in that place, in that nation. But at this time, um, under a succession of notable bishops, it was the third largest city in the empire uh, behind um, Rome and Carthage, and uh, it had a very vibrant Christian ministry. The mainstream of, and by the way, if you were to go even in the back of your Bible right now and just trace Paul's journeys, all right, first and second journeys, you'd see Paul's path going through this area, and it's not a coincidence. You got a guy who's in places like Corinth or Ephesus, and he's in Roman amphitheaters saying, where is the debater of the age? Where, bring it. Um, Disprove. Christianity, disprove me. And, and you, so you have guys with that zeal and exuberance and, of course, his under-shepherds um, out preaching and teaching the gospel. So it's not, it's, not a, it's, it's not surprising that with God's providence and, and Paul's commission and zeal that you see places like Antioch with a very, very large population, half of it being Christian. The mainstream of early Christian missionary work, however, did not move east of Antioch, but it went west. The Apostle Paul had set a course for Italy and Spain, uh, and his work proved to be the path of the future, and obviously this is under God's instruction. So let's look at some of these major cities, all right? Ephesus, and I'm going to pick up the pace here a bit. This seaport... And the surrounding regions of Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey, provided another fruitful field for Christian labor. From the days of Paul, Greek-speaking city dwellers in this area responded eagerly to the appeals of the gospel. Asia Minor was, for a time in the early 2nd century, a center of unusual growth. The governor of this region wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan in the year 112. This is a quote right here. This is a letter from the local governor who was a guy named Pliny. In it, he speaks of many in every period of life. And I want to point this out too. Pliny is absolutely an unbeliever. He hated the spread of Christianity. So I love it that one of our great historical records about the, the, the spread of Christianity is by an unbeliever himself who hated it. In it, he speaks of many in every period of life on every level of society of both sexes, in towns and villages and scattered throughout the countryside. Christianity was going everywhere. It is clear that the governor, Pliny, is afraid that the shrines of pagan gods will soon be completely deserted. I I wish he was right. Additionally, we may have the first mass movement of Christianity in Christian history. It is rather unique for rural areas in the ancient world. The general picture suggests that backwards areas inhabited by people who, were, who preferred to keep their barbarian speech were usually more resistant to the encroachment of the gospel. I want to point this out. This is no different today. 
us who live in rural areas, and I love this. I, I want to be clear about this. I love being in Nebraska. I love being in a rural area, and we are generally insulated from some of the nonsense in D.C., Seattle, um, the coastal areas where the populations are. It is not different today than it was then. Those who were in rural areas were insulated, much more insulated from the nonsense of pagan culture, of pagan government that had been oppressing them. But it's interesting that Christianity spread so well in Asia Minor. And you want to know why? Language. God used that area and the common language. Greek was only spoken then, or by this time period, by the common people. The highfalutin people and the, 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 the rulers and philosophers of the time were speaking Latin. And so it didn't spread that way effectively um, as well as it did in, uh, through Greek-speaking city dwellers and uh, rural people in Asia Minor. Um, skipping down here to letter B. Additionally, we may have the first mass movement in Christian history. I want, I want to point, I, I, this is one more thing. I, I love this stuff. I have to share this. This is legend. This is not history. So I want to share this story, though. I remember studying it. So one of the, the Greek historians of this time period was a guy named Eusebian. Have you heard of him before? Maybe you've heard that name. He tells of a story, and, and again, this is history, please. This is, not, this is not scripture. This is not documented. But some of history is oral, okay? Some of what we know is passed on, you know, orally. Um, and so I want to share this. So there's a story of, a, of an Eastern king in Asia, in Asia Minor, it's not clear if he's a governor or a king, but he's certainly of some, of some uh, political importance, okay? Writes a letter to Jesus. He's, he's heard about healings. He's heard about the miracles of Christ, okay, in Christ's ministry. And I want you to think about this geographically and time period. There is no texting. There is no social media. There is no, you know, Instagram, right? None of this is happening. This is in Asia Minor, okay, some probably 500-ish miles away from Israel, from where Christ's ministry is, writes a letter to Christ saying, I'm ill. He must have had some illness or something and wanted to be healed, wanted to be, you know, whatever illness, whatever sickness he had um, taken away. The point of the of sharing this, okay, the point of sharing this, true or not, I don't know if the letter is true, I have no, no way to validate this, this is just a, this is something that's handed down through uh, Eusebian's writings. Even during the time of Christ, his ministry, during the, the life and ministry of Christ, that news had spread already as far north and west as Asia Minor. It's very interesting to sit here today and see how quickly things spread, even then it was spreading. Whether true or not, the message had gotten out. All right, back to the notes. So it's, it's very interesting um, that it had spread that far. Uh, the general picture, though, suggests that the, the sort of the rural areas inhabited by people who preferred to keep their own speech were usually more resistant, but we see the gospel making it here. We know at any rate that as late as the 6th century, which is not this time period, this is the next one, 
Emperor Justinian was still rallying Christian forces for an assault on paganism on the interior of Asia Minor. It had, uh, it had spread there and, and it had flourished there. Next city here, Rome. Even farther west of Asia Minor is Italy. The heart of the vast Roman Empire drew itself to people of all religions. Um, I, I, want, I want to clarify this a little bit too because there's misconception about what Roman policy was toward religion and what it wasn't. Rome wanted to spread. Rome's empire wanted to, to spread everywhere. Okay, And part of their policy was to some extent religious freedom. It was, it was, a, it was a laissez-faire approach to expanding their empire. It was like, let's not take up the battle against religion. Like, let's let them keep the peace, worship what they worship, but let's expand our empire. Let's expand our economic uh, system, okay? Let's not make them change religion. And there's one huge caveat. Unless it starts disrupting Roman affairs. Then we'll come in and we'll squash it. Well, I mean, we know this at the, at the death of Christ. All right, we know this. It's well documented in the Gospels that Rome's policy um, through three illegal trials toward Christianity was not favorable, was it? Okay, it wasn't favorable, and yet so it spreads. Let's talk about Rome, though, specifically. Okay, the heart of the vast Roman Empire drew itself to people of all religions. They were accepting, okay, of, of all religions. Once planted by some unknown believers in the first century, the church the, the, the grew rapidly. The highly respected German scholar Adolf Harnack calculated that by AD 250, no less than 30,000 Christians lived in Rome. That's, that's impressive. That's a significant population in the largest city of the Roman Empire. Most of these people came from poorer classes. We know this because for more than a century, which, uh, which is also true in Asia Minor, for more than a century, Christians in Rome spoke Greek, the language, though, of the slaves, uh, which was the language of slaves and poor men. True Romans of the upper class spoke Latin. From its beginnings, this church in the capital, with its claim to the ministry of the apostles Peter and Paul, gained the respect and admiration of the Christians throughout the empire. And here's where we start to see some of what would become in the Roman Catholic Church as we know today. All right. So it's, that's not to say as the Roman Catholic Church has claimed that God gave it authority over all other leadership in Christian affairs. Even as large churches in metropolitan areas do in our own time. I want to make this clear. I want to, I want to give you an example. Okay. This church had grown to become significant. It had, become grown, it had grown to become large. Eventually, it is what gives way to uh, Roman Catholicism that we know today. But the concept is no different than as today. There are significant churches, large churches, that we would associate ourselves with who have a great reach through media and through other things, um, and we would align ourselves with. I, wanna, I think of you know, MacArthur's church in uh, in California, we think of other churches in Florida. You know, Jerry Rags Church in Florida. We think there are churches that have a large reach and have um, an effect over um, the, the 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 teaching and the spreading of of the word. Okay, uh, more than others. This is what's happening in Rome. Okay, and and then eventually does become the twisted. Um, 
sort of perverted church that we know today is the Roman Catholic Church. France, let's talk about this. How does it get there? Even farther west of Italy lies France. In the southern area of what we now call France, what was called then Gaul, we know a church existed called or in, in a city of Lyons or Lyon, which is still in existence today. Um, <clears throat> here, in the mid-2nd century, it, it, it pops up due to, a, and we know this, due to a large number of writings from the Bishop Irenaeus. And I put, a, I put a, a timeline on the last page here. You can, you can look at it on, uh, later. But by the end of the 3rd century, we also start to hear of churches popping up uh, through bishops and their writings in France and Spain. But the evidence suggests that the western regions of the empire trailed the eastern in the strength of Christian witnesses. What I mean by that is the churches that had popped up like in Antioch and a little bit further closer to Israel were still stronger in number and were still stronger in ministry. Go to the third page here. Almost done. Britain. How does it get there? Very interesting. Uh, we really don't know. Uh, both North France and Italy lies, uh, north of, of France and Italy lies Britain. We know, we really have no idea how Christianity first enters Britain. We may have been, or it may have been through some Roman soldier or some merchant. It was common at this time period that people are traveling there um, primarily for economic reasons. Um, all that we know for certain is that there were three bishops from Britain attended a church council held in Arles, which is still a city in existence in southern France. And they, they attended it in 314 AD. Beyond this, we only have imagination and hearsay. I think it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, where we sit today, we trace our Christian roots essentially from the people who came from Western Europe, primarily Britain. And yet we have no idea how Christianity really got there to begin with. Um, North Africa. So again, geographically, I'm doing a large circle. Okay, imagine Israel. We're traveling west. We're going across the Mediterranean. We're getting to Italy. We're in Asia Minor, just to the north of that, to the Aegean. We're going west. We're passing Italy. We're hitting Spain. We're hitting France. Then we're hitting Britain. And now we're coming back here uh, south to North Africa. Moving south across the Mediterranean, we come to North Africa. Again, the witness focuses primarily upon a city, Carthage. Carthage dominated the area now known as Tunisia and Algeria, which today is it's nothing. It is one of the poorest places in the world. Uh, you have, you, you, we have a, you know, you, you think we have an immigration problem from our southern border. I would challenge any immigration problem with the problem that France has in people coming from Tunisia and Algeria. It is, it is, uh, it is off the charts. Um, and it's because of their, just their very, very poor, very, very poor economy. But here, in this time period, there was a large mission, a large witness in Carthage. Christianity in this religion was led by a very different people. This did not go to the poor. It didn't go to the lower classes of society. It went to the upper. It's very interesting. Uh, Christianity in this, in this region was led by the bishops. 
every town and almost every village had its bishop. It had its leader. It had its sort of governor. I want you to think of it that way. Um, it also had its tensions. The writers, martyrs, bishops, we all know nearly all from the Romanized section of this community. In point of fact, North African Christianity produced the first Latin-speaking churches in the world. This means that they tended to be of the upper class. Why is that important? Anytime you have Christians speaking another language, now different from Greek, you have a desire to have the written word translated. And that gives way here. Uh, not, not immediately, but eventually. Lastly, I want to talk about the city of Cyrene and Alexandria. Cyrene, we have a lot of biblical references to this town. Um, moving east across North Africa, we at, arrive at Cyrene, which is just west of Egypt. This territory is mentioned four times in the New Testament. We're going to look at them. Simon of Cyrene did what for Christ? You can cheat. Look at the notes. We know this. It's a great story. He carried the cross. Okay? He carried the cross to Jesus on his way to Golgotha. Go to Mark 15.21. We see it mentioned right here. When you get there, you go ahead and read it, and then so much up ahead to um, Romans 16, 13. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of the <coughs> and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Yeah, there you go. Right at the time of Christ, headed toward his own crucifixion, Simon of Cyrene, right there. It's almost certain that Simon became a believer since we later meet his son, Rufus, in the circle of Christians in Romans 16.13. Go a few books over. Go to Romans 16.13. So Rufus goes to the Lord and his mother and mother. Yeah. Greet Rufus. And, and by the way, some of these places, I won't get off on, the, on this tangent, but greet uh, Trephena and Trephosa, workers in the Lord, Greek Persis, beloved, these all people have roots in this region. And, and ultimately, Paul sees fit to mention Rufus, the son of Simon Cyrene. So some Christianity must have survived generationally. That's important. I want you to see this. This is important. If it doesn't survive generationally, where does it go? Right? I mean, if we're not teaching our kids, where does it go to the next generation? If they're not teaching their kids, where does it go to, their, to the next generation? Right? It doesn't. So this is also an important, um, an important notice. Cyrenians were also present at the day of Pentecost. Well, the very day of, uh, of the Lord. When Peter delivered his rousing message to the crowd in Jerusalem. Go to Acts 2.10. And then obviously we see it later disputed here with Stephen in Acts 6.9. But go to Acts 2.10. Let's read this. One book over. Whoever gets there, go ahead and read it. Phrygia and Pamphylia. Mm-hmm. Egypt and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Look at how this is connected. Asia, Egypt, 
which Cyrene is just west of, and Rome. Here in the book of Acts, already we have mention of these places in first century Christianity. Go to Acts uh, 6-9, just another book. This is one of the great things in the book of Acts. Is it, uh, well, I should say one of the great themes of the book of Acts is the spread of Christianity in this time period. Acts 6-9 with Stephen here. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. Yeah, this is great. So you got guys from these places, not close places, might I add, already standing up, and obviously they're, they're opponents of Stephen. But the point is this. Christianity at this time period had spread geographically, okay? <clears throat> Lastly, Alexandria, named after who? Come on now. You know this. Alexander. Alexander the Great. Okay, Alexander the Great. Alexandria, and this was, uh, Alexander the Great was much, much earlier than this time period. But Alexandria, our circle around the Mediterranean begin, uh, brings us to Alexandria, named after Alexander the Great, who founded the city in 332 B.C., and made it a cultural capital and center for trade with East and West. Second largest city in the empire, right here. Second largest. Significant population of Christians. Alexandria also had a sizable Jewish population. Christian, Jewish, and Greek culture all clashed in this region. Early Christians in Alexandria like to claim John Mark as the founder of their church, although there's, there's not massive evidence for this this is just it's more of a claim it's more of a tradition how is it established we do not know but during the third and fourth centuries few churches exerted more influence this was a this was a uh, of sound church <clears throat> all right summary all right i want to tie this together what does this mean why do we why right look at this the, the flying tour here, and it was, I mean, it was like 190,000 foot flying tour. Of the early expansion of the church, we may say that by the end of the third century, no area of the empire was without some testimony of the gospel. This is historically well written and recorded. No area of the Roman Empire by the third century was really untouched by the gospel. The strength of this witness, however, was uneven. We got to admit that. The strongest areas were by far Syria, Asia Minor, North Africa, and Egypt, with a few other noteworthy cities such as Rome and Lyon, or Lyons. Village people in most areas were largely, largely untouched except for Asia Minor. So tie this in. Next, we're going to look at the rise more of Catholic Christianity, more in the sense of what you know now. This is one of the reasons why it's important for us to know the geography and know the spread of history or of the spread of Christianity. What became eventually what you now know of Catholic Christianity, okay, did not touch all of these areas that Christianity had originally spread in its orthodox, in its in its accepted teaching. Does that make sense? That is how we get, that is how we survive, okay, the, what became and what you now know of Roman Catholic Christianity. 
the original spread of Christianity, some of the spread of some of the areas that we just went through geographically did, did not, it was, it was allowed to remain unaffected, um, I should say little effect, or at least not so affected that they could not survive and keep their own Christian Orthodox tradition. So what we have today and what has survived today um, is preserved through this era, okay? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for preserving your church. Um, your, trauma, your, your promises are true, that, that you are the rock of the church, that you are the foundation, but that by your will, the church will grow and will spread, and you are the head of your church. We thank you that the church is your bride, and we look forward to the day when you take your bride home to yourself. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.